everybody. If you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5, and the title of our lesson today is, or title of our lesson is, A Day is a Day. A day is a day. Let's, let's read those first five verses if we can. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to remind everyone of something that I said um, a couple of weeks ago in our very first lesson and introduction, and that is how you approach Genesis is, I mean, critically important to what you're going to what you're going to get out of it. If you come to the Bible, if you come to Genesis as a skeptic, and you think you're going to open the pages and somehow find proof that it's all true, uh, you're not going to find what you're, what you're looking for. Um, as we said last week, God, or he said two weeks ago and then again last week, the Bible just opens up with the fact of God. It doesn't try to build up to it, doesn't try to explain him. It just says, in the beginning, God. It literally draws a line in the sand and says, okay, what are you going to do with it? I mean, it doesn't try to, like I said, doesn't, doesn't try to uh, build him up or explain him or anything. It just starts off with the fact of God. And so God is not going to be held hostage by a bunch of skeptics or proud human beings coming to the Bible and saying, show me proof. That's just not the way it works. Now, that doesn't mean that we check our brains at the door. We are made in the image of God. We are thinking, reasoning human beings and that's exactly what we should do. Proverbs 25.2 is one of my favorite scriptures. It says this, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it's the glory of kings to search them out. It's God's business to conceal things, but He has no problem with us. In fact, it's our glory as human beings to search those things out. Paul says over and over, grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We should be constantly... There's no God has no problem with that. In Isaiah 1.18... He says this, come now, let us reason. That word reason means debate, dispute. He has no problem with that. There's no problem with you coming to the Bible looking for answers. But the fact is, you have to come knowing that He is God. You don't come and say, you prove yourself to me. No, He's God. And if we come with humble hearts, then we will find what we're looking for. I tell you, when you read the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, one thing, the Bible's consistent about a lot of things, but the one thing the Bible's consistent about is God is looking for faith. He is looking for faith. From the very beginning to the very end, that's what He's looking for. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible without, without faith. In fact, if you, anyone that comes to Him, anyone that wants to draw near to God, has to believe two things. Number one, you must believe that He is. By the way, even the devils believe that. 
You have to believe a second thing, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That if I go after Him, if I look for Him, if I seek Him, He will reward me with what I'm looking for. So if you come to Him and you come to Scripture with a humble heart and you come with faith, you'll find what you're looking for. That's a promise from God. But we have to come believing that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now, at this point in our study, we're only our third weekend. We've only covered Genesis 1-1. So the Bible, at this point, when it comes to creation, we know one thing and one thing only. And that is that God supernaturally created the universe by His power. Now listen, every Bible-believing Christian must affirm that fact. If you don't affirm that God created everything through the, through the Word of His power, you don't believe the Bible, because that's all throughout the Bible. So that's not up for debate in this class, that God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's a fact. What's debatable is how he did it and when he did it. That's, that's kind of up for debate because when, let's, let's face it, there's not a whole lot of detail. God didn't see fit to give us a whole lot of detail. So what remains up for debate for us is the how and the when. Now, using the Bible, the, the age of the earth can be estimated or calculated approximately by the genealogies that the Bible gives us. Now, whether you're Christian or secular, it doesn't really matter. Most people will agree that Abraham, for example, lived about 2000 B.C., which was about 4,000 years ago, would have been Abraham. So we can do some simple calculations. We, the Bible tells us the earth was created in six days. You can follow the genealogies from Adam to Abraham, which is about 2,000 years. We know that we've got Abraham to now, which is about 4,000 years. So roughly you can approximate uh, the age of the earth uh, or the age of, of humankind from the Bible genealogies to be about uh, 6,000 years. Okay? Now that's approximate. We don't know for sure there's not some gaps in the genealogies. There very well could be. But even if there's gaps, the very best you can do is maybe push it out to 10,000 years, uh, maybe 15,000 years, something like that. But that's a far cry from what um, uh, evolutionists say. You see, science claims that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, not 6,000. They also claim that mankind is 2 to 3 million years old, not 6,000, okay? Now, they base that on various factors. They base it on uh, the fossil record. They base it on the age of rocks. They base it on the size of the universe, on a lot of things. And there's a lot of assumptions. And by the way, over the next few weeks, we'll talk about some of these things, okay? Because we'll, we're going to deal uh, with all of this. But how do, we how do we resolve this discrepancy between what science says and what God says. Science says it's four and a half billion years old. The Bible says that's roughly around 6,000. The science says men are two to three million years old. The Bible says no, it's roughly around 6,000. So how do, we, how, do we, uh, how do we resolve this? Well, first of all, as I said a couple weeks ago, we don't even consider Darwinian evolution as an option. Okay, Here's why. Evolution is built on a... Do we all know everybody has assumptions? You understand that? Everybody has presuppositions. When you come to the Bible, you come with assumptions. That's one of the dangers of reading the Bible is you make it fit your... Everybody with me? 
That's hard sometimes to lay, but everybody has presuppositions. Well, scientists and evolutionists have presuppositions that God did not create the universe. That's their presupposition. So you literally could find a signed letter by God that said, I created the universe, and they would discount it. Are you with me? It doesn't matter what you put in their face that says God did this or a designer. They take it off the table because that's the presupposition that they start with is God did not create the universe. Therefore, evolution by its definition is incompatible with the Bible because the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. So that's their presupposition. By the way, I have a presupposition. My presupposition is that God did create. That's where I start. And that's and so we all have presuppositions. Let's let's understand that. However, even though evolution is off the table, there are some proposed solutions put forward by supposedly Christian men. They say they're Christians. And they say they they believe in a creator, but they also believe that the earth is four and a half billion years old. So they say we believe the Bible, we believe there's a God, but we also believe that the earth is four and a half billion years old. And so they put forth some theories. Now you're going to have to put your thinking caps on this morning, okay? Because I'm going to stress you out just a little bit this morning. I'm going to give you three theories that have been put forward to reconcile a, 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 the Bible with the fact, that what's called the fact, that the earth is four and a half billion years old. I'm going to give you three theories. And these are all put forward by Christians, uh, and it's all meant to reconcile the biblical account with an old earth or an old universe. Okay, The first one of these is something called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. The, the, the the means what? God. Theology is a study of God. Theistic evolution. Um, it's like an honest lawyer. It's just two words that don't go together. I'm just, I, I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. Any of y'all are lawyers just forget I said that, okay? You get the point though, right? It's an oxymoron. Theistic evolution. It doesn't seem like the two should go together. Theistic evolution is a theory basically that God created all matter. He created everything. And then he kind of stepped back and said, okay, evolution, you take over. So God kind of created everything at the beginning and then he stepped back and he let billions of years just roll by and, and, and evolution just kind of took over and all this stuff happened. Okay, now there's different, there's different forms of theistic evolution. Um, some of them say God uh, just did it all at one time. Some of them say he has to kind of step in periodically and, and kind of perform a miracle to get it rolling again. But the point is that they're all some combination of God and evolution. Now, is this a viable theory? <coughs> Absolutely not. It's not viable at all. See, evolution, understand what evolution is. Evolution is the theory that the universe came about by natural processes. Everybody with me? Evolution is the presupposition that God did not do anything. That, that if you just leave it alone and give it enough time, somehow stuff will, will kind of evolve into uh, something better. Now, as we said from day one, that is impossible, okay? Inorganic matter, that chair, you could leave that chair there for a billion years, it's never going to change into organic matter. Life does not organize itself to become higher life forms. That, that just doesn't happen. It's, it can't happen, okay? 
And, and it definitely doesn't start from a worm and eventually get to a human being with a conscience and a personality and the ability to reason. That, that's insane. That does not happen. And in fact, it is a violation of all that science knows to be true. The fact that they even call it a theory is, is ridiculous. It's dishonest. That can never happen. You see, evolution has no way of explaining that. No way at all. They have no way of explaining how positive permanent change can happen. They'll say, oh, well, it's a mutation. But folks, mutations are always down. They're always bad. You don't, you know, listen, this isn't the X-Men. That's a comic book. Mutations degrade humanity. They don't take it, are you with me? It never goes up, right? Um, see, they all, they say, well, the dinosaur grew a wing. But see, now we know that takes genes. It takes code in the genes to tell, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about, you think about a baby being formed in the womb, and the amazing thing about that is these cells start to divide, and the, the DNA says, oh, you're a, you go to the heart, you go to the big toe, you go to be an ear cell, you're a hair cell, you're a foot cell, you're a, you go liver. That's the DNA does that, that's what your genes do. It's code, it's an amazing thing. Well, where do these new genes come from that say, oh, you need to grow a wing so you can learn to fly? See, evolution, it's, it's something from nothing. Are you with me? That just doesn't happen. I mean, how do animals without a backbone get one? How do animals without teeth suddenly develop one? How do animals that lay eggs suddenly get a uterus and become reproductive? And by the way, something that nobody has ever explained to me, how does the male evolve over thousands and millions of years, and the female evolves separately over millions of years. And one day they come together and everything just happens to work perfectly to make a baby. Do you understand they would have to evolve separately? They're not sitting there working every day. Hey, you know, you do this and I'll do this and we'll... That's not the way it works, right? It's, it's ridiculous. It's, and people have just bought into it hook, line. It's unbelievable to me. And how does this, and, and, and scientists will say, well, it's a mutation in their cells. Well, how does this mutant couple survive, by the way, for all this time when they can't reproduce till they finally can reproduce, and they take over everything, and, and by the way, they leave the species intact that they left? That None of this makes any sense. And you see, years ago, when Darwin developed his theory... They didn't know anything about cells. They didn't know anything about bacteria. They, they, didn't have, they couldn't see those things. And see, it made sense. Well, a cell is a very simple thing. And if it could just make one little change and then make just another little change and just another little change, then over time, if you give it enough time, anything can happen. But you see, the fact is, between now and then, we've developed something called the electron microscope. And the electron microscope can see down and actually look at bacteria, which are single-celled organisms. For example, this is a picture of the E. coli bacteria, and it has a tail. But when you actually get in with a microscope and look at that tail, you find a dadgum motor. It's a motor made up of proteins. It has a, it has a drive shaft. It can turn at 50,000 RPMs one way, stop on a quarter turn, and go 50,000 RPMs in the other way. It can compel that bacteria 20 times its length in a second. That would be a, a man like Michael Phelps could go 120 feet per second in a pool. 
if he had this motor. It has a, it has a, it's made of proteins. And they all come together and they make this motor. It, it is unbelievable when you go look at it. It's called the flagellum bacteria. You can, you can Google it. It has a drive shaft. It has bearings. It has a rotor. It has a stator. I mean, it's, it is a motor. It is unbelievable. And according to evolutionists, all of those little pieces would have to evolve separately. Oh, I'm going to be a drive shaft. I don't know what I'm going to go with one day. I don't know what I'm going to come to, but I'm going to evolve into a drive shaft. Well, I'll be a bearing. I don't know what a bearing is, but I'll be a bearing. And then one day they all devolve, and they all come together and say, wow, what a coincidence. We just happen to fit together into what some people call the most efficient motor ever built. Human beings cannot build a motor as efficient as to that motor in the flagellum bacteria. I mean, just imagine a car motor. This is what, this is what evolution says. Imagine a starter evolving on its own. And the flywheel, and the pistons, and the oil pan, and all these things, all, and the alternator. And then they all come together and say, wow, what a coincidence. We just happen to fit together perfectly to make a motor. That's evolution for you. That's evolution for you, folks. That's what evolution wants you to believe. Now listen, if that's not bad enough, one of the reasons theistic evolution doesn't work because it has to deny the Bible. See, God has told us right there in Genesis 1, this is, He didn't use billions of years. He didn't use evolution. So theistic evolutionists have to read the Bible and say, well, that's not really a historic account. It's, it's poetry or it's an allegory. So basically, they have to deny the historicity of the Bible, and, and therefore theistic evolution, uh, it just doesn't work. Listen, evolution has so many problems. Why anybody that believes in God would ever try to reach into that and try to pull that in and marry it to God in some way is absolutely beyond me. Why would you do that, especially when you have to throw out the Bible in order to do that? So theistic evolution is just not an option for a Bible-believing Christian. So that's number one. Number two, somebody has put forth one, something called the gap theory. Okay, the gap theory. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Notice verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, watch verse 2. Now, this verse has always been a little odd to me. And the earth was without form, and it was void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now remember, these theories are put forth because there are some people that believe the earth is four or five billion years old. And so they're trying to reconcile the age of the earth, which they consider a fact. They're trying to reconcile it with the Bible. And so they put forth this theory. So here's a theory called the gap theory, okay? The gap theory is first popularized in the, uh, in the early 1800s by a guy named Chalmers over in Scotland, but it was made famous by the Schofield Study Bible. How many of y'all have ever had or read a Schofield Study Bible? Okay, um, Schofield Study Bible was put out by a guy by the name of Schofield in 1909. It was reissued in, um, I think, 1917. This, he, this is, okay, the theory, let me tell you what the theory is, and I'll show you the notes. This is the theory. God created the earth. That's in verse 1. And this existed for like billions of years. It just went on and on and on and on. Then, as a result of Satan's fall, 
there occurred some devastating cataclysm on the earth. Destroyed all life, left the fossil graveyard everywhere. This is verse 2. In other words, I, I put this together to try to help you a little bit. You've got the, uh, the original creation in verse 1. God created the heavens and earth. And that lasts for billions of years. And then you've got the fall of Satan. And for some reason, when Satan fell, God brought judgment on the earth. So then you, when you get to verse 2, you've got this period of chaos. And then so in verse 3, when God starts creating, He's, not, he's, cre- he's basically recreating. Everybody with me? This is what's called the gap theory. This was put forward by the Schofield Study Bible. This is the notes directly from the Schofield uh, Study Bible in Genesis 1. It says this, The first verse refers to the dateless past and gives scope for all the geologic ages. The face of the earth bears everywhere the marks of such a catastrophe. There are not wanting hints which connect it with a previous testing and fall of angels, relegate fossils to the primitive creation, and no conflict of science with the Genesis cosmogony, which means creation account, remains. Okay? So, where do they get this from? Where's the evidence for this? Do they just pull it out of thin air? Well, what they do is they reach into the Old Testament and they find a couple things. First of all, they ask themselves the question, why would God create the earth in this state? And that is a good question. Why would God create the earth without form and void? Why would he do it that way? So that's kind of their starting question. And then they look into the Old Testament and they find some other scriptures, and I'll show you one in a second, that uses words like formless, void, darkness, and they find that those words are consistently used with the judgment of God. I'll give you an example. This is Jeremiah chapter 4, 23 to 27. Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And I looked to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. Now, this is Jeremiah prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. Everybody with me? But Schofield says, well, look, you know, anytime you use those words like that, it's a sign of God's judgment. So therefore, in Genesis 1, if the earth is without form and void, it must be because of God's judgment. And, the, and since people hadn't been created yet, the only judgment it could be against would, of course, be the fall of Satan. There's another scripture in Isaiah that they use. Isaiah 45, 18 says this, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. And then say, they look at that and say, See? See that? He Isaiah said He didn't create it a formless place or He didn't create it a waste place. Okay. By the way, Schofield popularized this. This is still around today. This is the Nelson Study Bible. Anybody ever had a Thomas Nelson Study Bible? If you look at the notes on Genesis 1, it says this. Here it means that God renewed what was in a chaotic state. The two words, without form and void, express one concept, chaos. The earth had been reduced to this state. It was not the way God had first created it. Okay. Now, those who advocate the gap theory like Schofield and Thomas Nelson, and, and there are some really smart people out there that, that believe this, they all agree that starting in verse 3, 
The six days of the creation week are literal days. But they interpret them as days of recreation. In other words, God had already created the earth. It existed for billions of years. It fell into some cataclysmic state. And then the six days, God recreates. He adds light. He adds, he adds the water. He adds the animals. He adds man, etc., etc. So what's wrong with this theory? Okay. Well, here's the problem with it. It's theologically unsound. One thing we've learned as we study the Bible is the Bible interprets the Bible. God doesn't make mistakes, right? You can't find something here that contradicts that. If you do, then there's, you've got a, a problem. See, according to this theory, plants and animal life would have existed, not only lived, but died for millions of years before man came along. Everybody with me? So for millions of years, God had this earth, and there was plants and trees and... and that's how, yeah, so there's all the dinosaurs, but there's no man. But all these dinosaurs and all these animals would have been living and dying and living and dying. And in fact, their deaths, they would say, see, look in the fossil record. You see where the, the dinosaurs have died. This all happened before the six days of, of creation. But see, those fossils that died, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, those fossils that we find died a violent death. Okay, basically, what if this theory is valid, then death had been going on for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, suffering and death. Everybody with me? Before Adam is even, even comes along. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, why would an orderly, merciful, loving God do that? And by the way, they can't blame Satan because according to the gap theory, Satan fell at the end of all those ages. So even before Satan fell, all these animals are living and dying and living and dying and living and dying for literally millions of years. See, here's the problem. According to this theory, all that death would have to be laid at God's feet. See, God Himself would be solely responsible for all that suffering, all that death, all that violence. And that's not theologically sound. See, the Bible teaches us in Romans 12, there's no death in the world until sin enters in. See, when, when, when God created the earth and He created all the animals, they're all, they're, all veg, they're all vegetarians. They're not meat eaters. There's no death. They're not dying. See, when sin enters in, then death enters the world. Not just death for men, but death for plants, death for the, for the animals. In fact, uh, Romans 6.23, we all know that. The wages of sin is death. It's sin that brings death. And of course, Christ's death is payment for our sins. But if death is already reigning in the world for billions of years before Adam, then death is not the wages of sin. It's just part of God's creative process. And, and that contradicts all that the Bible teaches us about sin and death. So that theory, it just makes no sense from that standpoint. Now again, there are some smart men out there with PhDs behind their name that find that plausible. Um, others just dismiss it outright. In the end, I think it's, it's, it's really iffy where it gets its premise, but the fact that it actually leads to a God-dishonoring theology, that God would use suffering and death uh, before sin came into the world, just, just does not line up 
with the other parts of the Bible, and so I think we have to dismiss that as well. So by the way, you may ask, well, what does verse 2 mean? See, I think verse 2, when it says the earth was without form and void, it just, it's, like a, it's like a potter who puts clay on the wheel, and then he starts to work it. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's just saying before he started working, it was empty. It was, it was unformed. That, that's all it's saying. Like, like to think of that as clay on a wheel, that's all that verse is saying. I think other people try to read uh, too much into it. Now, the third one. This is probably the one that you've heard of. This is called the day-age theory. Let's read verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the day from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The day-age theory basically says that the six days of creation are not ordinary 24-hour days, but much longer periods, millions of years, even possibly billions of years. Now, what, what, where do they get this from? What would be their evidence for this? Well, the key term for them is the Hebrew word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day. Now, in the Bible... The word yom doesn't always mean a 24-hour period. Let me tell you something about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language has 8,700 words. Okay, Compare that to French, which has 40,000, and to English, which has almost a half a million. So think about the English language has almost a half a million words. Hebrew has 8,700 now, if you, don't have, if you only have 8,700 words, you have to use the same word for a lot of things, right? Well, that's what they do with the Hebrew word yom. Um, for example, I'll give you a few meanings for this. This is the word yom. It can mean the period of light versus the period of night. In other words, it can mean a 12-hour period of time. Everybody with me? The day as opposed to the night. It can mean a day like 24 hours. It can mean a very general, vague time, like in the day of the Lord. Everybody with me? That's the Hebrew word yom. It can mean a point of time, like in the day of Jacob, back then, over there, right? It's a, it's a general term. It can even mean a year. I'll give you some examples. 1 Kings 1.1, David was old and stricken in yom. That means he was stricken in years. He was stricken in age. That's the word yom. Uh, the days, the yom of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. So there the word yom is referring to 147 years. Psalm 23, 6, the Lord is my shepherd, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for yom, forever. So there the word yom can mean eternity. So they use this word in a lot of different ways. It can mean a, a, a day, a 12-hour day, it can mean a 24-hour day, or it can mean, everybody with me? So everybody says, see, you can't take that at face value. It can mean anything. They also, people that believe this theory, also always refer to 2 Peter 3.8. Peter says, do not overlook this one thing or this one fact, beloved, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, see, God doesn't see time the way we do. A day to Him could be a billion years. Everybody with me? So they say, that's what they use to say, you can't take that at face value. Is that true? What's the problem with this theory? Well, there are a lot of issues with it. I mean a lot of issues. I'm only going to give you two, okay? 
First, remember what we always say, context always matters. If I get up here this morning and I say, I, I use, if I say the word fire, what do I mean? Do I mean fire the gun? Or do I mean, we need all, how do you know? You don't know, do you? Why? Because you have no context. You have no other words to put it into. Context always matters. Words don't occur in space apart from anything else. They always have other words which serve to clarify them or put them in context. Everybody with me? Okay? So it's the same in Genesis 1. All the surrounding words around Yom convey, if you're an unbiased reader and you just go read it, all the surrounding words convey the, the idea that he's talking about a 24-hour day. I'll give an example. The numerical qualifier demands a 24-hour day. The word day appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. And every single time, it's qualified with a number. First day, the third day, the fifth day, the seventh day. Every single time, it always refers to a 24-hour day. Exactly the same way it is here in Genesis 1-3. In every other case, without exception, it refers to a 24-hour day. Why would Genesis 1-3 be any different? Each of those days, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, every, every single one of them is qualified uh, with a, num a number. So consistency would demand that we treat them as 24-hour days. The term evening and morning require a 24-hour day. If you read Genesis 1-1, it's almost like God and Moses go out of their way to make sure you understand I'm talking about a 24-hour day. I'm going to use terms like day and night and evening and morning. I'm going to qualify that word so you're sure of what I'm, what I'm talking about. The word day and night, again, are used right here in this, in this Scripture. And by the way, if yom, the word day, is, an is, is millions of years, then doesn't the night have to be? To be cons well, that makes no sense. Why would he say that? See, it just, it's just not consistent if you, if you try to use it in that way. The second problem we have with that theory is this. It's, ex it's the same problem you have with the gap theory. If you believe that, that those animals existed for millions and billions of years then you have to believe that once again death was part of the earth before man ever comes on the scene. And once again, that is directly against what Scripture teaches. So either theistic evolution is wrong, the gap theory is wrong, and the day-age theory is wrong, or Romans 5.12 is wrong. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Either those theories are wrong or Romans 5.12 is wrong. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. It can't be, it can't be both. Here's my conclusion. Why six days? If you, can, if you can kind of, maybe can kind of tell, I believe in six literal days. And the reason I believe that is because the Bible says it. Because it says it's six literal days. And if I take that part and throw it out and said that's not believable, well, what do I do with this other part and this other part and this other part? I believe it. And by the way, I have, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. I'll explain why the earth looks like and acts like or seems like it's billions of years old. We'll, we'll talk about all that. I don't think it disproves it at all. 
In fact, I think if you really look at the geology and the fossil record, it actually proves the earth is not old. It actually proves what the Bible says. And we'll look at that in the, in the weeks to come. But today, as I close, I want to answer this question. Why six days? Do you understand God could have said, let it be, boom? Yes or no? It could have been all done in six milliseconds. Or God could have said, I'm going to take a thousand years to deal with this light thing. Right? He can do whatever He wants to do. He's God. So why six days? I mean, that's a good question. Why did He pick six days? Here's the reason. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. By the way, this is, I believe this scripture, this is on the Ten, this is the Ten Commandments, right? Which is dictated to Moses from God. So these are literally the words of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner, the traveler who is within your gates. Now why? Why? He's fixing to give you a reason that he set that up. Because in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. See, the reason He chose six days, and we're going to find out time is a big deal with God. As we go through the next verses, time, for some reason, is a big deal with Him. It starts out in the first three words, in the beginning. And then He immediately separates light and He makes day. And then He says, I'm going to put the stars... And therefore, seasons and times. Are you with me? We're going to find out it's a big deal with him. And so right off the bat, he determines, I'm going to take six days because I want to set a pattern. I'm going to set a pattern for life. I'm going to set a pattern for these humans to live by. There's going to be 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness, and that's going to be a day. And there's going to be six days that they labor, and I'm going to set aside one day for rest. See, he's setting a pattern for us. By the way, that passage in Exodus makes no sense if it reads like this. You need to work for six days and rest on the seventh because God worked for six million billion years and He rested on the seventh billion years. By the way, if it means billions of years, then God is still resting today. That means He's not working. He ain't doing nothing. Is that true? Of course that's not true. We said it last week. He's still creating new lives and new hearts every single day around this globe. He's still working. He's still involved. He's not, he's not resting for a billion years. See that he, he created in six days because He wanted to set a pattern for us. And that's exactly what He did. Here's the bottom line. God supernaturally created the universe, including the earth, plant, and animal life, and the first human beings. Now... We can, you know, we can kind of debate and, and all these different things, but that is a fact. There is nothing to debate right there. It's not due to natural processes. There's, it took a miracle. It took a miracle, and that's exactly how it came about. You see, don't get lost. And by the way, it's so easy. Even when I, This is one of the hardest studies I've ever done. And what makes it hard is I'm constantly wanting to chase rabbits. I constantly, what about this? What about that? But see, Genesis wants us to see God. 
God created, God created, God created. There's not a lot of detail. Did it in six days. Yeah, let's move on. Because it's about God. It's not about the how and the why and the when. It's just about Him. John Calvin says this, The intention of Moses in beginning his book with the creation of the world is to render God, as it were, visible to us in His works. That's what Genesis is all about. And that's what we have to focus on. God created. Look, again, not a lot of detail, not a lot of explanation. But if we believe that that first verse is true, in the beginning God created, then we believe we're created for a purpose and we need to fall on our knees and submit to Him who is our Creator and live in obedience to Him. Hey, I got some homework for you. How many of you have watched this yet on Netflix? Really? <laughs> okay, how many of y'all got Netflix? Okay, if you don't have Netflix, sign up for a 30-day trial and then cancel it after you, after you uh, watch this. Listen, I, there's a lot of this I could explain. Uh, Del, there's a show on Netflix called It's Genesis History. And it's Del Taggart, the guy that does the Truth Project. And he talks with all these scientists and go watch it. It's, it's worth an hour and a half, is Genesis history. He's going to explain a lot of the things that I, uh, that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I may struggle to explain. It's worth it. And you can watch it one or two times. And if you're not a big reader, again, it's easier to sit down. So if you've got it, go home. Is Genesis history? Just uh, put it in your search uh, engine in Netflix, and, and that'll be your homework for, uh, for this week. Let's pray. Father.